When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're here with Ryan Condal, one of the showrunners for House of the Dragon. Ryan has done the television show Colony, but most relevant to y'all will be the fact that he has a podcast all about props. It's called The Stuff Dreams Are Made Of, and he hosts it with David Mandel, who's known for Veep, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Seinfeld, and more. It's a great listen, so check it out and let them know that History of Westeros sent you. So well, there's two episodes in the book at this point, and obviously it's been a fantastic yeah. reaction. I-, I listened to your podcast, Stuff Dreams Are Made Of, and that was super fun. We will actually be doing, I'm going to have try to have some people on from the show, more like artisans that build stuff, because mm. I think more specific to the show. So I think this season we're going to come back in the fall and uh, soonish, and definitely it's still, it's still a show about you know collecting, but I think there's a lot of interest now that we can actually have people on. And talk about the stuff that they built for the show. So we're going to do a bit of that. And I think we're going to come right out of the gate with uh, somebody uh, very near and dear to my heart that worked on the show. So, yes, yeah, stuff dreams are made of. Please subscribe and give a listen. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting stuff. Yeah. I've really liked it. I, I listened to you talking with Tim, who's the armorer. Yeah, and Tim that's Lewis. Perf- it's a perfect example of the type of person that we could expect to hear from uh, from you. And your co-host, David, made a great joke there talking about you and House of the Dragon and how you're a collector of props and things like that. And he made the joke that it's like putting a heroin addict in charge of the heroin factory, which <laughs> that does seem like an apt thing. You being such a fan of props. So let me ask you, let me, let me see. Maybe we, we've got a little yeah. conspiracy theory here. Is this whole thing just a way to fuel your habit? House of the Dragon is all just your <laughs> props habit here. <laughs> yeah, Dave and I have also joked about that. He's like, really, the best way if you're a collector is just to sort of, you know, spend 15 years, you know, learning a craft and then go and create a genre fiction show <laughs> and then create a bunch of stuff within the show and then make the show and just steal the stuff from the show. And thus, you know, it's it's essentially a per- perpetual motion. Machine, right? It's... Um, <laughs> It's uh, there is no wasted energy uh, there. Uh, Simple as that. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's a good plan. I mean, I that's not why I got into it, but the thought did occur to me as I was, you know, taking parchments home with me every day <laughs> from, from from work. Well, I'll give an extra teaser for your show. I give people a little extra incentive to listen, which is that you teased some sort of prop, some item that was an original that was used in the show that was like the first thing you. Yeah 
grabbed for yourself and it, you said it was maybe damaged in a certain way during a stunt so he's going to reveal one day what that is so tune in folks i will and, yes uh, that episode has not happened yet but i did take a, a banged up one home with me from a particular scene that has not happened yet. Oh, okay so, so it wasn't a scene from uh, the first two episodes all right so we know that much Correct. <laughs> yeah. that's cool there's a question from someone who's interacted with your show that's a listener of our show as well taylor lineberry who asks okay. Will any of the House of the Dragon props make it to auction, you think? Or is that maybe too hard to predict at this point? Or I don't know. I mean, at this point, I mean, it's always hard to predict. You, you just never know where this stuff goes. I mean, mm. my hope is that at some point they would do something like that. And I will certainly encourage that when, you know, when the time comes, just because I think it's such a great, you know, fan outreach thing. Yeah. It's just a great way to sh share the show with the fans. And, yeah, I mean, you can imagine you haven't seen the containers and containers and we just make so much stuff for the show there even with a robust archive and multiple museum exhibits touring exhibits there's always more stuff than you could possibly keep and multiples and things like that because it is a you know very high-end show everything on the show is bespoke so there's just so much of it and at some point it just becomes so onerous to keep it all that i think that's actually a really cool way to you know dispose of something where it doesn't end up in a landfill and it's done in an official way. Um, if things always sneak out the back door uh, <laughs> for shows like this. I imagine they well, they did on the original show. I've seen things that are not supposed to be out there uh, that have been shown to me, but not in an official capacity. So nothing really happened with the original show in official capacity, which surprised me hmm. given how many seasons went on. I guess we shall see. Yeah, I could imagine to see the bidding on a giant Balerian skull. That thing is so huge. It's, it's like <laughs> the size of a Ford F-150. I mean, it's it's... It's gigantic. I don't know who would have room for that thing. I certainly don't, but that doesn't mean that I wouldn't bid on it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have room. How much bigger is the Balerian skull on set compared to the one you were at Comic-Con? We went to Comic-Con as well and saw the one in the yeah. Dragon's Den. How much bigger is the on-set one? Yeah. Is it about the same size? It's comparable, but I would say plus 25%, Ooh, maybe uh -huh. plus 20%. Yeah, the teeth were the real tell to me because the teeth on the real prop are, you know, properly like you know, short swords, uh, long daggers, <laughs> however you want to look at it, as described in, in the book. But yeah, it's a nor I mean, it's a And you can see it's not a visual trick. Like when Viserys and Rhaenyra are standing under it in the pilot, they're right in front of it. It's there. The prop is actually right there. It's not a green screen effect or a force perspective or an element or anything that's in there. It's up on a big plinth. You can see how, you know, Patty is a Patty's six foot. He's my height. Wow. It towers over him. <laughs> absolutely massive. That's fantastic. Well, one of the props slash set pieces that has caught a huge amount of attention, especially in our corner and, and just in general, is the just incredibly awesome Valyria model. Can you, uh, that yeah. Viserys is working on, can you talk to us about anything to do with that? Like where the idea came from, how it was made, just how much, how awesome it is? Because <laughs> I just stared at it yeah. last night. With the, There's the overhead shot in episode two, and I freeze framed it and just stared at it for a while and just uh -huh. kind of let my imagination run wild on the possibilities it's so beautiful yeah it's great it, it was built by our big props team and that's the same team that made Valerian skull the same team that made the iron throne the team that made the you haven't seen it yet but the artifacts in the sea snakes great hall mm. you saw a little yeah, bit, a little in, bit uh, yeah. in episode two yeah so anything kind of massive you know you can't take to set in a briefcase <laughs> that's considered a proper big piece of bespoke set deck they make. And that idea actually came out of the writer's room. And we were looking for 
you know, the joke in the writer's room is sort of like, I feel like Viserys would have a train set, you know, that he would be, be working <laughs> on. Like, what's what's the medieval version? What's the Westerosi version of a train set? And it came around to Viserys being a steeped in history. And we know that, you know, in, in the book, he's kind of cast as this sort of, you know, lighthearted king who likes his feasts and his balls and his hunts and things like that. And Viserys definitely has that streak to him. You know, he does have that bit. Oh, I wish I could just retire and go out to the country and <laughs> slough off this responsibility that I have. But I think the underlying thing, the more interesting, complex wrinkle to him is that he's he carries this burden that you know they shared with Rhaenyra in the first episode he is deeply steeped in Valyrian history and I think that was the thing that we came around to is like oh it's interesting that Viserys actually has this really deep kind of scholarly knowledge of Valyrian history and doesn't know it cursorily the way I think a lot of people even other Targaryens do they take all the important bits like yeah yeah fire and blood and dragons <laughs> and you know we're closer to gods than men yeah I got, I've got all that stuff whereas Viserys has actually studied it and we'll talk about it as the season goes on and it felt like his obsession with that history would lead to other things in a hobby and then mm. you know thus and so you go and it's like oh wouldn't it be cool if he was building a model of this the city center of old Valyria that he's reconstructed from as he tells Alicent, the histories, the texts, the drawings that exist. And this is considered to be, you know, at this time, a very accurate re-representation because, you know, he's the king. He's very rich. He can source whatever rare book he wants from any corner of the world that survived with descriptions of drawings of old Fleury. And he's doing much the job that Archmaester Gildane did, which is sifting mm. through historical accounts and trying to find the best ones to you know create so this is definitely an it's an idealized version of Valyria. i wouldn't say that's the actual city because no one would know because right. it was blown up and <laughs> we didn't have film or photographs that's the idea behind it and this idea that you know as you know the show takes place over some years particularly this season you also see it uh, kind of evolve as time passes on yeah that was a great way to show the passage of time we noted that between episode one and two and it, it helps Mm -hmm. One of the many ways to show the passage of time. It's a it's a great visual for that. It's also just great to look at in general. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. It, it could it's be a, hard for you to the... walk out the back door with that one, though, huh? It's a bit large. Correct. It is. In, <laughs> it is in section. It is in sections, thankfully. But yes, that's a tough one. It's funny because you talk about the experience of working on this show. Every other show that I've worked on, you envision this thing in your head, and then you ask somebody to build it, and they bring it in, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that'll work. This show, everything that came was always, first of all, 10 times greater than you thought and 10 times bigger than you thought. <laughs> and I first saw that thing and they were like, no, 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 that's just the, I was like, that's amazing. And they're like, oh, that's just the, um, that's just the city center. We actually have seven more people <laughs> oh, wow. uh, wow. building that we're bringing. I was like, what? And eventually, you know, you, you see it, it, it kind of takes over the apartments in an interesting way. I love it. And it's dragon scale. So you see all those the little dragons that Viserys is holding. Yeah. I and mean, that's, that's sort of a, dr a Drogon scaled. So you can imagine how big that thing yeah, is. It's it's really, huge. Yeah, it's huge. It's really cool because they built the city. They were a culture of dragons. So they built the city to the scale of their gods. Yeah. And um, I, think, I think that's really fascinating. It is. It's I, reflected. You can see like where they would land. And yeah, just all this. The space is made for them. I suppose I have a question. Which came first, the concept to have the series have a model of Valyria or to have it be the opening credits? Hmm, which yeah. built off of one <laughs> another? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of one fed the other. I mean, the credits were done much later because we shot the show before the credits. But the idea with the credits was always to try to create a representation of old Valyria. With the sense that the credits are this kind of unknowable technology from old Valyria as a way that they have of mm. 
tracking their genealogy mm. again a representation of it we don't really know what we're looking at but trust in that the you know blood mages and the people that kept track of genealogy back in valyria where they had all their crazy technology and magics would have known exactly what that was oh. that's that's the sort of idea that we're going into and then with nice. the yeah, you know, the model being the sort of impetus for the creation of that. That's really cool. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. It must have been a lot of fun to try to imagine some of that stuff. It, it brings up another question: the supernatural elements in the show. In the first Game of Thrones, they maybe were reluctant to include some of the supernatural elements, even though there's very powerful supernatural elements throughout it. In Fire and Blood, there's less of that, of course. So it was a right. surprise, a very good, happy surprise that this stuff about Aegon's dream was included. It gave us a lot to talk about, a lot to think about, and added that supernatural element. Can you talk to us maybe about your approach for not just that particular plot point, but just how to handle the supernatural, how to handle things like that in this setting, or what your approach was? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you have to do so with a deft hand. I mean, I, I love what George did in the original books, was he, well, he opens with that you know, banger of a chapter, yeah. the prologue of the first book, <laughs> which tells you that this is a fantasy world, but then then you don't go back to it quickly. And what happens in that chapter, which I always love in the way he wrote it, even though those characters inhabit this fantasy world, that stuff is really scary and out of world to them. So you know that it's rare and it hasn't happened. So you know it's special. And then he takes a long time before he dips back into that world and, and goes back there. I mean, you know, in terms of the first book, I mean, we get a little bit of a sense that maybe something's going on with Varys. And then I think the other big thing that happens is the hatching of the dragons, yeah. right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. not, uh, I don't think we get into faceless men. Direwolves, of course, come around, but those more seem, that seems like an event, but those seem like more of a, you know, finding a crypto. Yeah. Well, the wolf <laughs> you know, dreams don't start creature. till book two. You're right. So they got the direwolves, but the supernatural, yeah. The, yeah, like, all the, the real deep and... stuff doesn't come till a bit later. You're right. Yeah. So he immerses you into it. He doesn't just come at you with all this kind of high magic and high fantasy. I've always really liked that. And I actually like what David and Dan did a lot in the original series because they played even more coy with it to draw people in, into the real elements of the show. And then they kind of built on that and came out with it. So they didn't turn off the uh, sort of snobby adults that were coming, <laughs> pretending that they were watching a, uh, <laughs> a, you know, a palace intrigue piece, yeah. a, a you know, historical fiction piece. With Fire and Blood, you know, as you pointed out, the magical element there is really just the dragons. Um, and a bit of dreams, yeah, you know, Targaryen dreams, yeah. dreams and things. It's essentially the magic that's related to the Targaryens and, and little else. So we wanted to keep the sense of that alive because it is very much alive in Westeros. And you know, George himself talks about when there are dragons around, the magic is more alive in the world. So how do we keep that alive and remind people that this is a world where prophecies come true, where things are foreseen and then do happen, where magic does exist. We know that there is blood magic and there's all sorts of, uh, you know, green seeing and you know, the weirwoods and all those things that we know from the original series. But I didn't want to just, you know, dump it on the narrative. So it's how do you find places and storylines where you can remind people that that stuff is still alive? I mean, the dragons really help because they are cool and they are, you know, <laughs> a very visual reminder that we live in a fantasy world. But I also love what George did with all the prophecy and the clever way that he built that stuff over, you know, decades and and some of it still hasn't paid off in the books. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but we know it's going to. And that's what, you know, drew us back to the dream when George told us about, you know, Egon being a dreamer and that having been kept from the written history, that felt like a great place to go because that felt like something that the Targaryens could carry and you can play with ideas you know, within that, we also know where that history goes. So that makes it 
in and itself interesting and, and turns it on its ear the way George always does with his writing. And this isn't just going to go to a clean end where you find the chosen <laughs> one and it's Neo and he saves the Matrix. You know, it's, it doesn't go that way. See, um, the letters N-E-O that's, are that's in Aegon, so I really <laughs> thought... No. That's true. And you can't spell Targaryen without Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just give you that. Damn, how did I miss that one? So on the subject of <laughs> the dream, in various interviews, it, it seems to me that George provided you with the information that Aegon was a dreamer, and y'all filled in the gaps of what the ramifications of that could be, how that could go. You spoke about how you decided to build on that by having him pass that down to future generations. Is that the sort of thing that you come up with and then you run it by George and see how what he thinks of it how much of this is like a consultation a collaboration what's the process like yeah, there the yeah, back and forth are you that. just texting him every day <laughs> <laughs> I do text him every day he texted me he texted me today yeah it's an organic process and I definitely with big things like that I do really try to involve him as much as I can I mean some of it is acknowledging that there is show canon and book canon and we now know that those two things are different they have to be because yeah. you know the, the the show is different than the book so we are show canon but that doesn't mean that i'm not attempting to do the thing that i promised right out of the outset which is render a very faithful adaptation of fire and blood but trying to do so in a way that also provides connectivity to the original show and that requires certain things to be modified to be invented in some cases also just the nature of fire and blood being a history book we are told that events happened. We don't know how and why they happened. We don't see the POV chapter. That's the scene between <laughs> Alice and, and Viserys in, you know, in his bedchamber. But we can imagine something like that happened to lead to the thing that's actually in the historical record. Yeah. So I'm constantly playing with all that stuff. And when big things do come along, I really do try to, you know, share them with George, pitch them to George, run them past George. Also, he's reading things all the way as we go along he's reading scripts he's seeing mm. cuts as i mean cuts is a bit late but he's <laughs> reading scripts as they go along and here's the season pitch when we have it and you know big things i try to run past him sometimes i ask i ask t to go oh. to go run it past him <laughs> Lovely. and also she, you know she's really good at having a sense of things that he will like or possibly things that are more of a discussion with him she's working so, a long time um yeah, so it's it is a really organic process and I think a respectful one. I mean, he understands that I have a very different job than he does and I have to render a thing to present it on television and also justify the massive cost of the show <laughs> and draw in a massive audience. So, you know, we're always playing with multiple masters, the biggest of which to me is George in his lore, but sometimes that stuff can't be 100% fully serviced, yeah. but I try to do it as much and as often as I can so that he knows and sees the truth, which is that I deeply, deeply care about his material. That's great. And that does shine through. I mean, obviously we've only seen two episodes, but we can tell there's so many small details that reflect that care. And the yeah, fan, the you. fans really noticed that. I mean, you know, this is an obsessive fandom and detail oriented fandom. So yeah, I think that's, it's going great. We're so happy. Another question. What are some of your favorite, eras and fire and blood was this one of the ones that you were particularly drawn to or is this just the one that you uh, of course in some way you must have been but how much of this yeah. was what you wanted to do versus you thought this was the best story to put on screen i think it definitely was the one to come out of the gate with and i've talked about this before in other interviews so pardon if i'm repeating myself but i felt like this particular story had the most thematic connectivity with the original mm. 
tale, a song of ice and fire, because this is the thing that we know as book readers leads essentially leads to the decline because of the mistakes made in this period. And even though it's 170 years before, even before Daenerys's birth, it's 200 years before we meet Waymar Royce uh, mm-hmm. ranging north of the wall. It does have a ton of resonance with the original series, and it, it is the counterpoint. It's like there's the empire in decline. This is the empire at its very mm. height. So I think for all those reasons, it did feel like the one to come out of the gate with. It was the first real Targaryen history that I've been exposed to because of Princess and the Queen and the Rogue Prince. Mm-hmm. You know, George, when I got the job, he handed me the galley for Fire and Blood because it was a few months before it had been published, which, of course, Ooh. I, as a fan, freaked out yeah. went home and, you know, Devoured consumed yeah. like, you know, like a raccoon behind a dumpster <laughs> finding a Krispy Kreme donut. And, um, Perfect. <laughs> And, uh, and I really, I loved, I really loved it all. I mean, I think as a book nerd, I most enjoyed the Jaharis period because it's so classic George, which is like, everything's going great on the surface and his family is tearing him apart piece by piece (laughs) from within and all of the interesting character dynamics that are going on within that. And also Jaharis is sort of a tortured guy who is trying to, be the best king he can and he's taken this oath and there's a little bit of Viserys in him our Viserys at least there's a little bit of um Rhaegar in him yeah, I think too yeah this, this guy who's trying to live up to a little bit of Jon Snow too mm-hmm. guy who realizes that he has this burden of a certain birth and then is trying to own up to it and keep up to it by training and by studying and building roads and traveling the empire and getting to know his other lords. And I was really fascinated by all that. And I just, I love that as a book nerd. I think that's more of a challenging adaptation because it is a family drama told. And you know, there there is no threat from the North or threat from Essos or civil war to to fight. But those are the two sections of the book, Jaehaerys and the dance that really, Mm -hmm. really snagged me. I think I really, once you hit Jaehaerys to me, you really kind of tear through the rest of the book pretty quickly. Then just as a fan, I want, I want to read about, the Blackfire Rebellion. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. right on. Yeah, we've dedicated a lot of podcasting Volume time two. to that. Yeah, right. <laughs> we love, yeah, the big empty spot in World of Ice and Fire where he's like, oh, this is where Blackfire 3 is going to be, but I haven't written it yet. So, yeah, <laughs> we're waiting yes. for that. Someday, someday, yes. right? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So speaking of Jaehaerys, this is kind of a random question, but we thought it was fun. The throne that Jaehaerys is sitting on at the beginning, that's a fantastic prop or item or whatever whatever we'd call that. I don't know what it's really made of. For all we know, it's a piece of styrofoam. But is there any thought to where that came from? It was a kind of a random question we got. Like maybe the sea snake found that on one of his journeys. Is that the kind of thing that, that ever gets 
discussed in the background? Like, I know you guys are all no, have I, some some nerdiness I mean, in you to add that detail. <laughs> we do talk a bit about it. Some of it gets written into the script. That was not. That was our wonderful set deck and props team going hog on that. But I think the idea there was simply we're at Harren Hall. We're not at home. Yeah. If he was at home, he'd probably be sitting on the Iron Throne. True. Uh, but he's gone there for this kind of once in a sort of once in a dynasty event, right? And this is the Targaryen Empire at its height, and they're trying to project, you know, strength and confidence and, I think, wealth and power and, you know, do not challenge us, do not challenge the boat <laughs> as it comes. So even though it's in Harrenhal and it's a few weeks march away from King's Landing, they probably built a bunch of stuff to go and represent themselves in the Great yeah. Hall. So what would Jaehaerys or Jaehaerys' um, council uh, and close counselors have built for him to project this kind of dynastic power at an event like this, where you're literally going to be standing before every lord in the kingdom demanding their fealty. You made the point about that being the actor who played Bib Fortuna, Michael Carter. It almost looks like Jabba's yeah. plinth. <laughs> it's like he's really, yeah. it's like he's taking That's his right. old master's spot there. Important question, I think, for understanding how this was adapted, and I think something that you've briefly touched on in other interviews. You've worked on other TV shows before. You have quite a bit of experience here, but this is a very different script, at least the source material. Obviously, you didn't just take Fire and Blood and use it as a script. But as an adaptation, that's a very different thing to have to base the show off of than what you normally have. Talk to us a little bit about how that made things different, how that uh, affected your process, and maybe how that allowed some of the actors, like Emily Carey as an example, her journaling and character was that a, a, an extension of all that allowing the actors to have more room given that the source material has this extra room in it yeah i mean it's definitely a fascinating challenge as an adapting writer because it is kind of wholly unique i mean i was trying to think of another example of something like that a fictional piece of nonfiction. the closest i could get was a cimmerillion yeah uh, but the cimmerillion's <laughs> never been adapted and, it, and the cimmerillion's even written a little bit more like prose. So this is really like, you know, if I was adapting a medieval history book on the anarchy or something like that, where you do your best to draw as much from the history as you can. And then you realize that there's a bit of dramatic invention that you have to do. The latitude that I think it brings is exciting because it's challenging. But there are sometimes we're sitting there and we just wish we had a little bit more, you know, material to hang our hat on to move the narrative on. It definitely has its features and its and its um, its flaws. Hmm. Not not that it's a flawed book, just in, in terms of the adaptation exercise. Right. In terms of the actors, I mean, you know, Emily's a great example, a uh, wonderful actor, really smart, you know, about wholly realizing this character. I think when they're talking about their backstory and things like that, they're more talking about emotions and things mm -hmm. that, you know, wouldn't necessarily... I mean, uh, most of that stuff, I mean, she she showed it to to us at some point, to Miguel and I, but I, I think it was more of an emotional history okay. to help her get to where she needed to be as an actor in that play. I mean, she's not, essentially, she's not sitting down writing like Westerosi. Right. <laughs> but, you know, all fascinating exercise. And I think you've accurately identified a lot less of that would have had to go on with A Song of Ice and Fire just because those characters are so fully realized. And even people who are adults, you get windows into their childhood throughout the course of the thing and you get a sense of who they are. So yeah, the, the short, you know, the long answer, I guess, is that Fire and Blood does offer a ton of opportunity for invention, both to the writers and to the actors inhabiting the characters. All right. 
We've got a couple of real quick questions to finish off. I know we're about out of time here, so we'll give you just some short ones yeah, to yeah. wrap it up. Go ahead. A question from a listener, Scott Wartman. Is there a favorite house of yours that you just weren't able to include that you really wanted to? Or do you just have that power? If you want something, you're just like, you nah, we're it. putting that in there. I know you <laughs> no, said you could include a machine guns if you wanted to on uh, what's <laughs> on the right. stuff dreams are made of podcast. You made that point. That's so right. that is true. We don't expect the, to see uh, machine guns. The top panels of Viserys' wheelhouse do pop off at some point. Little, <laughs> Cannons and Browning's machine guns come up all of the Batmobile. That's going to be a surprise. Um, That's the real twist. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is, it is surprising. Wildfire cannons. That. Yeah. That's good too. I've really enjoyed introducing i think the fun of this series is that you get to introduce the high towers yeah. and the valarians and spend a lot of time with them so i've really enjoyed that i think i think particularly the valarians have been really interesting because that was such an interesting place to go and that's a house that exists in the song of ice and fire but is so kind of marginalized that you don't even really hear about them anymore um so here exploring them at their height the high towers are always important it's just they're way off in the south and they didn't have anybody at court so you don't really get a sense of them i think they're interesting because this is their world series. I mean, this is the best, this is the best the franchise has ever been. Yes. <laughs> Most powerful. Peak. And I think that's a fascinating thing to explore because they, you know, many ways you can say either one of those houses are sort of the Lannisters of this time in their reach and power and their access to the, you know, to the throne and to the King's ear. In some cases, the King's bed. Um, <laughs> true, true. And uh, I think all that stuff is fascinating. I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad that Fire and Blood, as much as I love the Starks and the Lannisters, was not just another, yeah. you know, go at the Starks and the Lannisters. You know that they still inhabit the world, but we're going to focus over here and here now. Yeah. And I, and I, and I like that a lot. That was good. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree with that. From Stacey Meyer, was there any particular character that stood out as really hard to cast? One that through that process that proved particularly difficult, maybe more than one? Hmm. I mean, we had sort of an embarrassment of riches the whole way along because <laughs> it's such a great acting pool out here. And also people really wanted to do this to the show. And we were casting during COVID. So a lot of people were out of work oh, um, or at least paused on work. Mm. So a lot of people were just happy to, if not get out of their houses, at least get in front of a Zoom and do some acting. I think I, it was very challenging casting the multi-generational characters, the characters uh. that we we represent in at different ages mm. because you have to find actors that reasonably have the same kind of facial structures one another so you believe that one grows into the other but they also have to be great actors yeah. <laughs> and you have to find two of them <laughs> so that that was very challenging you know young Rhaenyra and young Alicent were very challenging because the very first people we cast in the show were Patty Emma and Olivia oh, and okay. so we had Emma and Olivia for months before we got to emily carrie and millie alcock interesting uh alcock sorry i keep giving this like british accent to her name it's alcock <laughs> um sorry millie I introduced her on stage pronounced her name wrong <laughs> at the uh british premiere in front of 800 people so, uh, so anyway it's alcock it's alcock, alcock. Okay. um but yeah so you know there and that was really tricky because those are two main characters you need these really interesting deeply compelling actors to in inhabit not only the character, but also <laughs> to fill Emma Darcy's shoes and Olivia Cook's shoes, which is no small feat mm -hmm. in itself. And so that just took a little time. Right on. Well, that does make a lot of sense, the, the multi-generation ones. I've, I've Lots of shows that have had that challenge. What comes to mind is Rome, when they had to change the actor for Augustus. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, he didn't really yeah, look like the other so. one. I mean, they were both good actors, but that was an example of, wait, that's Augustus? Uh, oh, anyway. But yeah. I don't envy that, having to make that choice. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, but all credit goes to Kate Rhodes James, to our casting director. I need to call out Kate because she did all the finding. She just put great people in front of us and let us, you know, hmm. read them and and challenge them. Okay. Uh, okay, two quick ones here. Do you have a favorite Egon of all time? That's a question from listener Dom Tartaglia. I mean, Egon too is is not a good person, <laughs> but he's but he's he he's fascinating to write mm, for. Interesting because there's a deep pathos there, and it's mm. like it's one of those characters who it's a great George you know character because he is gray. And he does in even the things that you don't like in him, as you will see, there are reasons that a, a person becomes that way over, over time, being raised in such an environment, being, you know, things, things happening around him. And there's nature and nurture elements to it. But he's not a he's not a straight sort of Joffrey, you know, bad seed. I think Egon could have been in a different environment, maybe broken a different way. And also Egon is sort of the kind of guy where. You know, if he wasn't vying for the throne, he'd probably be just kind of fine. The fact that the crown is within reach, that makes him kind of more perilous and dangerous than he is. Whereas Joffrey is sort of, you know, you don't even want that guy as a neighbor in your building. Yeah, Um, true psycho. But I have to also pay service to Duncan Egg. And I love little egg egg on and that whole story and where that goes. And because of my relationship to George, I've been exposed to certain things about, you know, deeper details about that particular story oh. and uh <laughs> and uh and it's just it's great i mean it's you know spoiler for your podcast george is a very good writer and uh, has <laughs> what <laughs> this is the has, first uh, we're hearing of this yeah, <laughs> i know and has really great things in store there and they're wonderful i've always loved that story because it's just so tonally different than a song of ice and fire and also fire and blood i just think it's a great you know even though they're all happening in the same world it's three completely different meals for people and that one's always been very kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, I think I read It's Impossible. I read The Hedge Knight before I read Storm of Swords. I mean, really? I think that might have happened. That, well, so. it did come out before yeah. Storm of Swords. I think it came out only like a few weeks after Clash of Kings, if I remember my history correctly. But Yeah, I became a fan just as Storm was being published. So I think I found The Hedge Knight while I was waiting to track down the hardcover for Storm. So I think I read that. And it just stuck with me because I was like, wow, this is really cool. So there's a whole universe here. That's amazing. That is also when I discovered the universe. I remember going to Barnes & Noble to read the Cersei chapter in the back of the paperback, Storm of Swords, which was... That was the only way to get it yeah. without buying the book again. Yeah. So, yeah, those were the days. Those were the days when they had bookstores. Yes, those were. Those were, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Now you uh, you go find the synopsis online somewhere that someone else has posted illegally. TikTok. Yes, TikTok, right. TikTok has replaced bookstores? That's grim. And, and literacy. <laughs> Don't forget literacy. Yeah. All right, last question. A lot of people want to know about things about the sources, like the characters from Fire and Blood who provided the sources, whether we'll get like a taste of... Maybe not taste isn't the right word for mushroom <laughs> or Septon Eustace or any of the other or while or any of these other characters or any of these can have like a nod. Of course, it'd be maybe too much to expect them to be featured. I don't know that anyone's expecting that, yeah. but will we maybe get hints of that? Is there some nod to that being thrown in? Maybe something to look forward to? Maybe I will say no one wants to taste mushroom. <laughs> just, to, just to start. Yeah, I was Believe poorly me. worded on my part. <laughs> yes, that's that's a that's a biohazard. <laughs> if I've ever heard one. The, that's a bad that trip. That's if, the wrong even kind if, of mushroom. Even <laughs> yes, even if a third of those stories are true, nobody wants. You should you should definitely wash your hands after <laughs> meeting mushroom. But uh, yes, uh, there is service paid to those things. Some more than others. Some not at all. Okay, is that a vague enough 
Yeah. Tantalizing enough. Yeah, I mean, we, well, we, we can't expect too much there, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we're, we we're hopeful. We had to ask. It's yeah. a burning question in the fandom. A lot of people wanted to know, and we, we you know, we told them that we wouldn't probably get a completely straight answer, but, you know, it'd be worth asking. So we appreciate that. Yeah, so this has been great. We really appreciate your time. These were some really good answers. Of course. It's great nerding out with you on this. We're all just fans of this material. You obviously have a, a big high seat here, and we're really happy with what's yeah. been coming from you and your team. Great. Well, great. I mean, that means that means a whole lot. I mean, this is, you know, this audience is where I started and it's definitely who I had in mind when sitting down with the show. Um, and I want to, you know, I want to do right by you guys. So that's all great to hear. Awesome. Well, we'll call it a, an interview here. A great conversation has been had. We'll be putting this out soon. And happy future endeavors here. We're looking forward to everything else. There's eight more episodes this season. We don't need to remind our listeners to watch the next episode. That's the most obvious <laughs> thing ever. But we can but remind y'all to check out Ryan's podcast. Check out Stuff Dreams yes. Are Made Of, for sure. Subscribe, listen, yes. and maybe start, if y'all want, start with that George R. R. Martin episode. Y'all have an interview with him. That's a great place to start. Um, but, yes. but the rest of the catalog is excellent, too. All right, everyone. Thanks for watching. Ryan, thanks again. And we'll see you all next time. Valar Reredis.